Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, we're looking at the second, or verses 4 through the end of the chapter. You'll find it just before Esther and Job and Psalms. After Ezra. Well, I, like probably most of you, like to stay informed what's going on in the world, but increasingly the main outlets by which you can find that information have a way of explaining things in, in such inflammatory ways that it's hard to read the news without becoming upset really doesn't matter where you, what source you're reading from, it seems. And then that kind of sucks me into this nosedive of frustration and despair that's difficult to recover from. Hours later, I'm still trying to refocus my attention. So let me know if you've discovered the secret of staying informed without wanting to break something every time you read the news. But wouldn't it be great if your first reaction to the news was to pray? I'm not talking about a, a quick, effortless prayer, but the kind of prayer that takes you out of your routine, that puts you in a posture of submission before and dependence upon the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the example that we have in our passage this morning. Last week, we were introduced to Nehemiah, and the first trait about, his, about him from the text reveals his concern for the people of God. He inquires about their well-being, and he shows compassion for them. He wanted to know how the people were doing, how the city was holding up since they had returned. And although he was in a position that was unaffected himself by the return from exile, his concern was with the people who did return, those who had remained in the city as well. So the Lord had, had placed his spiritual and ethnic brothers and sisters upon his mind and heart while he is serving the king. There's um, a tendency in fallen humanity that's actually, in fact, Ray mentioned it in his prayer, this quickness to be driven by fear and self-preservation, right? that, that we, we allow these things like the news outlets and social media right, to stoke these baser reactions in us. It's not like those things are, are making us something that we weren't. They're revealing something about us that we don't like. And so instead of trusting God, which is revealed through a prayerful dependence upon him, we might even begin to despise God for putting us in our circumstances. Believers should have a, a different response than that, right? We should respond to distressing news with heartfelt prayer that's personal, that's inspired and confident. 
And so that's what we'll see from Nehemiah's example. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in this special way that you have given us your word to study and meditate, to sit under its teaching and to be transformed by it as your spirit works in and through it and we receive it by faith. Lord, we want to depend upon you even now that this worship service would be an act of of learning to set aside the distractions and to trust to get out of a, a downward spiral that we might be in and to turn our eyes and our minds and our hearts to you to be reminded of your promises to us and of your goodness and of your power and might and your sovereign will And so, Lord, open our eyes this morning, give us ears to hear, and soften our hearts to respond in obedience to your teaching. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Nehemiah, and we'll go ahead and read the entire chapter just so we get the context again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me, And keep my commandments and do them. Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, I've got a, a, a little lengthier outline than I generally have for you in your bulletin. So if you're a note taker, you can fill in all five blanks. 
So you, I'm going to really test you this morning. But the first one is pray with devotion. From verse 4, pray with devotion. It's the first lesson we learn from this verse. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah has just heard the report about the distressing situation in Jerusalem in verse 3. And the moment he heard the news, he responds with heartfelt prayer. His response didn't simply take him out of his routine for a couple of minutes or even a few hours. As we learn from this verse, his routine was wrecked for several days. And in fact, it leads to months of prayer and fasting. We will find Nehemiah to be a man of superior administrative abilities. He's the kind of person who attacks his work and doesn't like to let up. He's not an indecisive leader, but before he attempts anything, he cries out to the Lord. Nehemiah's emotional commitment is apparent. He's weeping. The depth of his insight is clear as he's quoting scripture throughout. His patient devotion to prayer, it, it builds in this chapter that supports as a foundation for the rest of his prayers throughout. We'll see somewhere between nine to ten prayers of Nehemiah, much shorter prayers throughout the book. But it shows here the foundation of his prayer life that supports those shorter prayers or those shorter examples. So the devastating news of the state of the city and the remnant that remained in Jerusalem left Nehemiah mourning for days, which was followed by months of fasting and praying. And we know it was anywhere between four to five months because as we saw in verse one, this happened in the month of Kislev. And then in chapter two, it's not until the month of Nisan in the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes that he actually receives instruction from the king to do something about it. So somewhere between November and December is when the chapter one opens. And then somewhere around March or April of the following year is when chapter 2 begins. That means he spends all the intervening time in prayer, praying something like this prayer day and night. Now, it also mentions that he spent time fasting. He continued fasting and praying. That doesn't mean he was not eating the entire time, four to five months, but fasting, it's, it's so misunderstood today that few Christians practice it properly or with any regularity. And some have, some have used it sort of like a, a lucky charm. And they try to win God's favor through fasting or maybe win prestige with their friends to tell them how long they fasted. That's not what fasting is about. The, the vast majority of Christians today really avoid it altogether. And we have to ask why that is. And my guess is that they simply don't understand it. They've not really been taught it. They've not seen it exemplified. I remember asking one of my pastors while we were in seminary if Presbyterians believed in fasting. 
And I, and I meant it. I was genuinely asking because for the three years that I'd been attending the Presbyterian Church, I'd never heard of it. Never, never heard of anyone doing it. Never heard it commended or commented on from the pulpit. And I'm not, I'm not saying that they didn't. It's possible that it, you know, that was one of those moments where my mind was elsewhere. But I really didn't understand why it was neglected as much as it was. Fasting shouldn't be so uncommon that you can't remember the last time you thought of doing so. Fasting is abstaining from food for various lengths of time. I even be just a, a portion of the day. Could be for several days. But it's for a particular purpose, typically. Right? It's oftentimes associated with mourning in Scripture. Somewhere, even probably most of the occurrences of fasting in Scripture have to do with mourning. But it could also relate to maybe a specific burden or something that's heavy upon your heart. A decision you need to make where you're seeking wisdom from the Lord. Fasts are generally done personally and privately, which is partly why we read from Matthew, right? The warning about doing so publicly and to get attention. That's, that's partly why Presbyterians are reluctant to talk about it openly. And I, I respect that. I, I do have a sense, though, that many of us just don't talk about it because we don't do it. All right, so you generally do them personally, but there are examples of corporate fast. In fact, in Ezra, chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, Ezra calls the people to a corporate fast. Esther 4.16, when Esther is making his deci her decision before uh, going in to, to see the king and to confront Haman and his plot to annihilate the Jews, she calls for her people to fast on her behalf for three days and three nights. You see something similar in Acts 27.9, it speaks of the fast, which is probably a reference to the Passover. So at some point through the Old Testament, practices of, of the Passover fasting became a, a significant part of that celebration, right? You would end that fast with the meal. So fasting has a, a lengthy pedigree that's biblical, it's historical, it's commendable, and we should practice it. So one simple test to know if you're, you're trusting God is to consider how devoted you are to prayer. Do the concerns of the moment drive you to the throne room of grace? How long do you remain there? Do you pray for a few minutes, a couple of hours? Have you ever pr prayed about anything for months before doing something about it? I know these are probably convicting questions. They convicted me as I prepared for this. And some of us probably need to spend a considerable amount of time repenting for our lack of devotion to prayer. Jesus modeled the character and the content of prayer and fasting for his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, as we read earlier. He expected his hearers to pray and fast. Did you notice at the beginning of each section, he said, when you pray, consider these things. When you fast, fast in this way. He's expecting 
his followers to pray and fast. And so when we invest the time to pray, we are recognizing our dependence upon God and our need for the help of the Holy Spirit. And so as we turn to the, the content of Nehemiah's prayer in verses 5 and following, we see characteristics that are common to biblical prayer. And the first is adoration. So that's your second outline. Pray with adoration, verses 5 through 6a. Nehemiah begins his, his prayer with a few titles and attributes of God. Notice he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. So he starts his prayer with acknowledging the one to whom he is praying. He acknowledges God's greatness, his awesomeness, his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love. That's adoration. It's, it's what, adoration is what prevents our intimacy from becoming flippancy. And unfortunately, the word awesome has been overused to the point that we no longer recognize its association with fear. Awesome. You're to be in awe before God. There's to be reverence before the one to whom we pray. And I often refer to God's transcendence and his eminence. We see both here in the description of God's attributes. God is far above the creatures of, the creatures of his creation. He's the God of heaven. But he also draws near to us through the covenant. The Old Testament frequently mentions God's steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness to his people. And Nehemiah also recognizes his dependence upon God's merciful willingness to hear his prayer. And it's, it's a prayer that he's been praying continually, day and night. And, and so the, the depth of his burden is matched by the consistency of his prayer life. Prayers of adoration can be found all over the Bible. I would encourage you especially to open up the Psalms when you're praying. Utilize them. You'll find prayers of adoration throughout. Oftentimes the hymns that we sing are filled with words of adoration. In fact, when I pray the pastoral prayer, a lot of times the, the words I use in that prayer are, are borrowed from the very psalms and hymns that we just sang. That's the point. That's the purpose in, in singing to the Lord is communing with him. And so you can use your Trinity Psalter hymnal in your prayer life. Prayer should open with words of praise and adoration for who God is and what he has done. And as we reflect upon God's character, you take stock of God's attributes as he's revealed himself in his word, and you reflect upon the God to whom you are praying. It begins there. And by doing so, it will inevitably impact the way you bring your petitions to him the way you pour out your burdens upon him because you know his care for you. You've been reminded of his power and his majesty and his might and his goodness. 
And so it draws you into a deeper prayer, which oftentimes begins with confession. Adoration will naturally lead us into confession as we're humbled by the power and majesty and holiness of a sovereign God. And we see that in Nehemiah's example in the very next section, 6b through 7. Pray with confession. That's your third point. Nehemiah accepts his own part in the corruption. Notice, he says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. We have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So the corruption that plagued the Jews post-exile, he recognizes his own part in that. Even I and my father's house have sinned. He knows he's guilty before God. And so while the words of his prayer do not reveal specifics about that guilt, we can be certain that his heart is open before the Lord. He's not concealing anything from him as he prays. Notice, too, that his repentance includes the corrupt ways in which they have acted as well as their, uh, the commandments and statutes and the rules that they neglected to keep. So he confesses their sins of omission as well as their sins of commission. And he needed to repent of the good they failed to do as well as the evil that they did. Nehemiah knows that the the remnant who survived the exile, their greatest need was forgiveness. But forgiveness is, is not granted to those who lack repentance. And so his prayer models what true confession involves. When the Times of London invited several authors to respond to the theme, What's Wrong with the World?, G.K. Chesterton contributed the form, or contributed this brief letter. He said, Dear Sirs, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. And then he said, Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That was his response, acknowledging his personal contribution to the fallen humanity in which he belonged, right? Corporate confession of sin is, is not generic and distant. There's a, a recognition of personal culpability that is completely countercultural to today's finger-pointing atmosphere. At, at a time when everyone in the country wants to blame someone else for their situation, Christians ought to model humility and repentance. But let me be clear, what compels repentance is not the perceived humility it portrays to the outside world. It's not what we can gain from it, the appearance of looking humble. It's the genuine inward sense of guilt that compels us to confess our sin to the Lord. We're not simply going through the motions, even when we spend this brief time in the worship service Right before we take the Lord's Supper, confessing our sin in that service, we shouldn't be simply going through the motions. And it takes us back to verse 3, right, where we heard the great trouble and shame 
of the remnant that was there in Jerusalem. We, we confess our sins because we feel the need to be forgiven. And here's the key. None of us are guiltless standing before a perfectly holy God. And yet for anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ, he bears the full weight of God's wrath, including their guilt and shame. And his death on the cross, he takes that guilt and that shame and that sin upon himself, and in exchange he gives you his righteousness so that you do come with confidence before the throne room of grace before the foot of the cross. So while repentance involves mourning over our sin, it doesn't leave us there, but through the apprehension of the mercy of God held out to us through Jesus Christ, repentance leads us to Scripture's promises of assurance. And that's where Nehemiah's confession leads him to, to be mindful of the way God has given them promises that he expected them to enter into exile and then to return to him. And so it's one reason why we should pray with Scripture. That's your fourth point. Pray with Scripture, verses 8 through 9. Nehemiah patches together language from a, a hodgepodge of biblical references. He heavily leans upon Deuteronomy, nearly quoting it verbatim at times. God's prophets foretold the exile and also left the remnant with the remedy. They would be able to return to the land when they return to God. In other words, when they repent. Raymond Brown mentions that in Nehemiah's prayer, we hear echoes, Moses, echoes of Moses and Solomon and David and Jehoshaphat and Daniel and Ezra. And he says this, he's not simply inspired by their example. His prayer is enriched by their language. He is praying their prayers after them. And so I've already mentioned how the Psalms can serve as a sort of roadmap for prayer. Whether praying individually or corporately, the Psalms should serve as a regular companion to you on your knees. That as we spend time reading the Word of God, its language ought to begin to fill our minds and hearts as we speak to Him. Allow me to quote Charles Spurgeon at length on this point. He says this, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions of the historic facts or the historical facts but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models and what is better still your spirit is flavored with the words of the lord he goes on i would quote john bunyan as an instance of what i mean read anything of his and you'll see that it is almost like reading the bible itself 
He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture, and though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, the sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text. For his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. So biblical language should be so familiar to us that it influences our communion with God as well as one another. We ought to pray with the Bible opened before us. The promises of God should be at the forefront of our minds, on the tip of our tongues. Those promises are the very means God uses to strengthen our faith. That's why we can pray with confidence, as Nehemiah concludes in verses 10 and 11. Pray with confidence, your fifth point. Ezra 4.21 records for us how Artaxerxes the king had put an end to the work in Jerusalem. So some point earlier, he had stopped that work that Nehemiah is now mourning has left the walls in ruins, has left the city in its current state. Surely this fact gave him pause as he is Artaxerxes' cupbearer. Gives him pause as he's also welling up this desire to see that work resume. What can he do? But his earthly circumstances are met by the heavenly promises of restoration that he's just reflected upon. And so the same servants that God has redeemed by his great power, look there at verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So the same servants that God has redeemed by his great power and strong hand are now crying out with Nehemiah in prayer. So although Nehemiah is praying alone, it's as if prayer ushers him into the same room as the remnant in Jerusalem. As they cry out to God with the same requests. Right? Nehemiah knows that their prayers are a collective chorus filling the ears of the Lord. One commentator said, all too often believers underestimate the power of corporate prayer. It unifies, encourages, and inspires the people of God. All necessities for doing God's work as seen in the book of Nehemiah. If you want to see God move, pray. If you want to see God move in a community, pray in community. And so while this prayer is only an example of how Nehemiah prayed day and night, if he concluded with something similar to what he prayed here, we might suggest that he potentially prayed for success before the king today some 300 times day and night for five months. Might today be the day 
that you give me an opportunity to speak to the king. So he prays with confidence, knowing that the Lord is powerful enough to change the heart of the king who had just decreed something contrary to what he's praying. He's confident God can sway the heart of our exercises in his perfect timing, but he's also patient. He's waiting. So day after day, day and night, he prays to the Lord the same thing. And he waits. He waits for God to orchestrate what's recorded in the next chapter. And we'll look at that next week. So while we pray with confidence, we also recognize the value of patiently waiting for God. All right, so let's conclude. And maybe before I give you the very last point, the last words of conclusion, I'll test those of you who are taking notes. Pray with devotion, pray with adoration, pray with confession, pray with scripture, and pray with confidence. We noted the importance of Nehemiah's role as cupbearer to the king last week. It seems like an introductory point that we should know something about what Nehemiah does, right? And so as we were looking just at the first three verses, we had to jump down to verse 11 to get that detail. It's typical introductory material. And so it makes it somewhat surprising to find it at the end of chapter 1 rather than at the beginning. By placing this information after his prayer, Nehemiah is hinting that the divine strategy is about to unfold. God is on the verge of relieving the distressing tension that his people are under. And so we can be encouraged by that as we continue to read this book. Let's ask the Lord for his blessings upon us. Heavenly Father, we recognize even now as we have learned about prayer and we have seen it modeled in the character and in the content of Nehemiah's prayer, we recognize our dependence upon your spirit to enable us to pray rightly, to give us the words to say when we're speechless. When our circumstances are so overwhelming that all we can do is groan and weep. Lord, even that should be done before you in a state of prayer, in a state of trusting in you. May we not neglect to fast. May we not neglect to take our petitions before you, to lift up one another, to bear one another's burdens, to ask each other how we can pray this week. Help us to be quick to share with others how they can pray for us. Not because it's about us, but it's because we all depend upon you and your help. And we know that you work through the prayers of your saints. And so hear our prayers now, even as we respond in, in song, Lord, receive our praise and our adoration. May we take the time to humbly confess our sin before you and hear your assurance of pardon and to receive the promises of your word and then to taste and see the goodness of that in the Lord's Supper. And through all of it, may you be lifted high and honored as you are worthy to receive. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response.
actually psalm of response, Psalm 68b, O Lord, thou hast ascended, please stand. <clears throat> 